our minister read these words a few weeks back, and while I was sitting in the pew, I was reading these words, and one of the verses caught my attention, and I thought I might preach on that this morning, and that's verse 94. We'll start our reading at verse 73. Psalm 119, verse 73, the Word of God reads, Your hands have made and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I might learn your commandments. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Let your mercy come to me that I may live. For your law is my delight. Let the insolent be put to shame, because they have wronged me without wronged me with falsehood. And as for me, I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, that they may know your testimonies. May my heart be blameless in your statutes, may I that I may not be put to shame. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. My eyes long for your promise. I ask, when will you comfort me? For I have become like a wineskin in the smoke. Yet I have not forsaken your statutes. How long must your servant endure? When will you judge those who persecute me? The insolent have dug pitfalls for me. They do not live according to your law. All your commandments are sure. They persecute me without, with falsehood. Help me. They have almost made an end of me on earth, but I have not forsaken your precepts. In your steadfast love, give me life that I may keep the testimonies of your mouth. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth, and it stands forth. By your appointment they stand this day, for all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. I will never forget your precepts, for by them you have given me life. I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. The wicked lie and wait to destroy me. But I consider your testimonies. I have seen a limit to all perfection, but your commandment is exceedingly broad. And this morning I want to focus on verse 94, where the psalmist says, I am yours. Save me, for I have sought your precepts. And after the proclamation of God's word, we will respond with Psalm 66. Stanzas 7 and 8. Keep your hands off my body. Those words, beloved were written on a placard recently 
by a protester in America who was protesting the right to have an abortion if she willed. This was in response to the decision of the Supreme Court that overturned that famous landmark decision years ago, Roe versus Wade, about abortion. And basically the Supreme Court in America has given the matter of legalize, the legalization of abortion to the states rather than to the federal government. And some states pro, will prohibit abortion, so there's this rally, and this woman is, is, is hanging up this, holding up this placard, hands off my body. And then there's another rally somewhere else in the world, and this one is for the legalization of assisted suicide for those who are, are terminally ill. And there's an old person in a wheelchair with the oxygen under his nose, and he's holding up a placard, It's my body. There are a lot of people in the world who think that I belong to me. I own me. My life is mine. My body is mine. My time is mine. My will is mine. My money is mine. And the implication of all these thoughts is I can do what I want with what is mine. Now maybe you shake your head in dismay at, at those arrogant thoughts and words. But let me remind you that by nature we would be saying exactly the very same things. Now we don't. And why don't we? Well, because the Lord Jesus Christ has sent his spirit to illumine our minds with the truth that we belong to God. Our God who created us and the Savior who redeemed us. And because of that work which Christ has performed for us and because of the work of the Spirit in us, we now surrender ourselves to the Lord. We do this so totally. And we, we now say to him, like the psalmist says in our text, I am yours, O Lord. But when we live in total surrender to God, that arouses the hatred of the ungodly towards us. Our three sworn enemies have done exactly that. They have sworn to continue attacking us with the hope that we will surrender ourselves to their temptations and we will surrender ourselves to them. And if we don't surrender, then they make life very difficult for us. Now thankfully, and we can turn to God in prayer. We can ask God to save us. And as we will sing, in, or as we have sung in Psalm 34, God promises to hear the prayers of the righteous. And so this morning I will preach to you the word of God using the words of our text as the theme, I am yours, save me, for I have sought your precepts. And we're going to divide that verse into three parts. First of all, there is my confession. I am yours. Then there's my cry. Save me. And then there's my conduct. 
I have sought your precepts. So first of all, we'll consider my confession. I am yours. And what does the psalmist mean when he says this to God? I am yours. Well, those words have a history. Those words have a background in Israel's history. And to understand them, we need to go back in time. To the time when God made his covenant with Israel and Egypt. And the Lord had sent Moses ahead, of, uh, ahead to, Mo- to Egypt. And the, the Lord c- commanded Moses to say to the people of Israel, I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. I will take you to be my people. I will make you my own, says God. And later again, the Lord confirmed these words, this covenant, when Israel was in the wilderness and God was talking about all the blessings that he would pour out upon his people when he brought them into that land flowing with milk and honey. And one of those blessings that God promised was that they would live together in very intimate fellowship with God and the Lord with them. And then in that context, God says, I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. And so again, God says, you're mine. And so when the psalmist says in our text, I am yours, he's thinking about that relationship that the Lord has established with him in that covenant of grace. So those are some of the things that are behind the psalmist's words. There's other things behind as well. The words that the psalmist has taken on his lips and written in this psalm are also words that a husband and wife would speak together in that intimate bond of marriage. In the Song of Solomon, the young bride or the bride-to-be says about her beloved, My beloved is mine, and I am his. And there you have the same words as the psalmist has written in verse 94 of our text. He says, I am his. Except he says to God, I am yours. And thereby he's confessing that he has this very intimate relationship with the Lord. And that covenant relationship with the Lord was possible because the Lord chose him in his sovereign grace and in his his electing love. And the psalmist knows that he knew that he he was chosen already right from the time when he was born. The psalmist would be reminded of this through his circumcision, which was a, a sign and a seal that he belonged to the Lord. The Lord put his mark of ownership on the psalmist when he was a little baby, And by means of circumcision, God said, you are mine, and this sign in your body is a reminder of that. And as he thought about that, I'm sure he would think about the blood that was shed in order to establish this covenant of grace. The psalmist knew that he was a sinner, and he would have known, like we know, that his sins prevented him from having a relationship with God. But thankfully God would provide a sacrifice and blood would be shed that would take away his sins. 
And that would happen, and that did happen, at least ceremonially, when his foreskin was removed. But ultimately, the psalmist's circumcision pointed ahead to the circumcision of our Lord Jesus Christ when he hung on the cross. Because on the cross, he who knew no sin was made sin for us. And he was circumcised on the cross. That is, he was cut off from the fountain of life. He was cut off from God. And the psalmist then knows that he belongs to God because he's been bought, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of a Savior. And so when the psalmist says then in our text, I am yours, he's confessing the very same thing that we confess in our beloved catechism. And you know it by heart. I am not my own. I belong, body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, And so we confess the very same thing as the psalmist is confessing, who says, I am yours, O Lord. And that meant so much to the psalmist, just like it means so much to us. It's such a wonderful thing to belong to the Lord. This Lord who is so gracious, whose mercy is as high as the heavens, whose love is as deep as the ocean. And the psalmist knew that all his sins are forgiven him. Because of the blood of the mediator, foreshadowed in in his circumcision, foreshadowed in all the sacrifices which the psalmist would bring to the temple. And because of the Lord's mercy towards him, he lived daily under the providential care of this almighty creator of heaven and earth. And so the psalmist is filled with joy when he says that. He is so happy when he says, I am yours, O Lord. But there's another aspect to this this confession that he belongs to the Lord. And to show this to you, I'd, I'd ask you to take your Bible and open with me to the book of Kings, 1 Kings 20. One Kings 20. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, but I will refer later to this text again, so if you want to keep your bookmark in there. We'll read verses 1 through 4. Ben-Hadad, the king of Assyria, gathered all his army together. Thirty-two kings were with him, and horses and chariots. And he went up and closed in on Samaria and fought against it. And You understand, Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom, the ten northern tribes of Israel. And Ben-Hadad then sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, Thus says Ben-Hadad, Your silver and your gold are mine, your best wives and children are mine. And the king of Israel answered, As you say, my lord, O king, I am yours, and all that I have. And look at what Ahab says there in verse 4. He says, I am yours. That's exactly the same thing as what the psalmist says in our psalm. I am yours. The context is totally different, but the concept is the same. 
In this situation, the context is that King Ahab is, is being surrounded by the enemies of the king of Assyria. And King Ahab knows that there is absolutely no way that he will be able to defeat these powerful forces that are against him. Now, he should be putting his trust in God and God would fight for him, but he doesn't. And instead, King Ahab surrenders to Ben-Hadad. And it's in that context of surrender that he says to King, a- King Ben-Hadad, I am yours. That's exactly the same as what the psalmist says. The only difference is that Ben-Hadad says it to, uh, King Ahab says it to King Ben-Hadad. The psalmist says it to the Lord. But what's clear from the context is that these words, I am yours, are also words of complete surrender. And so when the Lord says, I am yours, he's essentially saying, I surrender myself totally to you, O Lord, completely and without limit. Now, I'm going to read verse 9 with you in a moment. And I want to show you from this context that Ahab's surrender to Ben-Hadad wasn't complete. See, what happened is, is that Ben-Hadad saw how quickly King Ahab had capitulated, how quickly he had surrendered. And so when he saw how easily and how quickly ben, uh, Ahab surrendered, then Ben-Hadad thought, well, oh, I think I can raise the ante here. I can raise the stakes. And so instead of just taking what was in King Ahab's palace, Ben-Hadad thought, you know, I can do more. I can, I can go, I'll send my messengers into the city of Samaria, and they will take whatever and whoever they want. I won't just limit myself to what is in King Ahab's palace. We're going to take it all. They were going to strip Samaria bare. And then look at verse 9. Ahab responds. He says, a little bit further in verse 9, he says to the servants of Ben-Hadad, Tell my lord, the king, all that you first demanded of your servant I will do, but this thing I cannot do. And so Ahab was willing to surrender a lot of his possessions, but he wasn't willing to surrender everything. There was a limit to his surrender. Sometimes, beloved Christians, are, are like King Ahab. There are Christians who are willing and ready to surrender a lot to the Lord, but not everything. There's a limit to their surrender. Sometimes they experience that what the Lord wants from them is just too much. And they're not willing to give everything to the Lord. And so they turn around and they walk away from the Lord. I can think of one passage in, in Luke 18. You, you know the story about the rich young ruler, the ruler of the synagogue. He came to Jesus. He said, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus ultimately answered, he said, sell 
all that you have and distribute to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. This young ruler was willing to surrender much of his time, of his will to the Lord. But when Jesus said, now you've got to surrender everything that you have, well, that was just too much for him. He was not willing to surrender all for Jesus. And that's what God demands. He says, you need to surrender everything that I ask of you. And we shouldn't be surprised either if the Lord demands us to surrender all. I mean, just look at what he did for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ surrendered his whole life to do God's will. 33 years of surrender. And then finally, at the end of his life, he, he offered himself body and soul to the, the suffering and torment of hell on earth. And then he allowed himself to be completely and totally forsaken by his Father in heaven, so that he endured total rejection in order to pay for our sins. And so don't be amazed then, beloved, when the Lord requires us to say exactly what the psalmist says, I am yours, O Lord. The Lord requires us to surrender ourselves totally to him because of the total surrender of our Lord Jesus Christ. But that goes against our nature, beloved. Since the fall into sin, every person on earth is inclined to say, I will do what I want with my body. No one will tell me what to do. I belong to me. My life, my body, my will, and everything I have is mine. And the only way that a person can surrender himself totally to the Lord and say, as the psalmist does, I am yours, is if he has experienced in his own life the grace of God in Jesus Christ, and if his nature has also been renewed by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And the psalmist has experienced that grace. And he knows that he belongs to the Lord who chose him, the Lord who redeemed him, the Lord who has entered into that intimate covenant of grace. And therefore he says to the Lord, I am yours. Have you surrendered yourself totally to the Lord, beloved? Do you declare to the Lord, I am yours totally? My life is yours. My body is yours. My energy is yours. My possessions are yours. There's still another aspect to surrendering ourselves to the Lord. Those who surrender themselves to the Lord will experience difficulties in, in their life. And that brings us to the second point where the psalmist cries to the Lord, Save me. That's our second point then. My cry, save me. There are two major themes running through, the, through this psalm. One of them I'm sure you know. And that is the psalmist's sincere love for the commandments of the Lord. Time and again he, he chooses words and more words to express his, his 
earnest love for the law of the Lord. He says, it's my meditation all day long. I think about it in the night. I love your law. It's sweeter than honey. And so that's one of the themes that runs throughout this psalm. The second theme is one of of oppression, of affliction, of persecution. And those two lines don't just run side by side, but they are intertwined with each other. The psalmist experiences troubles in life because his conduct is righteous, because he's lived in accordance with God's law. And so throughout this psalm, there are references to the afflictions that were caused by the ungodly. And I I could list quite a few, but I'm just going to list some of them that we read together in the portion that we read. In Psalm 78, he he laments, Let the insolent be put to shame because they have wronged me with falsehood. Verse 85, the insolent have dug pitfalls for me. Verse 86, they persecute me with falsehood. Help me. Verse 95, the wicked lie in wait to destroy me. And why is it that these ungodly are afflicting the psalmist? Well, beloved, it's the age-old situation that already started with Cain and Abel. Why did Cain afflict and attack Abel? In 1 John 3.12 we read, Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Cain could not stand having his righteous brother live beside him and expose all his own sins. And he hated his brother because his brother's deeds were righteous and his own were evil. And the psalmist experienced also what David would write about many years later. In 2 Timothy 3, He said, Paul said, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. All, not just some, but all. And it's in this context then, beloved, that the psalmist cries out to God, Save me! He's praying to God to rescue him from the wicked who afflict him precisely because he keeps God's commandments. Do you experience that, beloved, in your life? Do you feel the attacks of our three sworn enemies? Do you ever get the sense that the devil is attacking you? Do you ever get the sense that he's trying to get you to surrender to him? Are you aware of the temptations that the world is putting in front of you? Hoping that you will surrender to those temptations? Do you experience, beloved, that there's a battle raging within your own being as you struggle with that enemy who is within, in your heart, in your mind, in your flesh? Do you see yourself at war as you try to put those remnants of the old nature to death in you? Sexual immorality, impurity, Passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. Let me be concrete and give some ways where we might feel this attack. Ways that we might surrender when we shouldn't. Take, for example, the matter of the Lord's Day. 
God sets the Lord's day as, as his day. That's why it's called the Lord's day. And God says, this is the day that you are to devote, to devote yourself to worshiping me, to enjoying fellowship with my people. Now, the fact that you are sitting here this morning indicates that you are prepared to surrender at least a part of this day to the Lord. But the, the temptation is there to devote the remainder of the day to your relaxation or your recreation. And so there could be some here this morning who choose not to come here this afternoon. Because they say, I don't mind surrendering a part of the day to you, Lord. But don't expect me to surrender the whole day to you. And so we can be tempted to say, I surrender, but not totally. Or another example, our finances. I doubt that there is anyone here this morning who does not give something to the Lord. We are all willing to surrender something. But the Lord demands the first fruits, not the last, not the leftovers. And what God demands of us is sometimes quite a bit. So many causes in God's kingdom. And God tells us, seek first the kingdom of God and and I'll take care of all your needs. But it's very difficult for us to surrender what we should surrender. Sometimes because our needs are very great. Sometimes because our wants are very great. And so I can ask you, are you surrendering your first fruits to the Lord? Or, or another example, our obedience to the Lord's commandments. I am sure that there is not one person among us this morning who is not prepared to surrender something of your will to God. I'm sure that every one of us here is happy to live according to many of God's commandments. But are we willing to surrender ourselves to all of God's commandments? Sometimes it happens that God's children, they, they keep nine of the commandments, but there's one commandment that they continue to sin against, and they harbor that sin in their life, and they continue to live in that sin. Is there any part of your life, beloved, anything that is happening behind closed doors or in the darkness, is there anything happening in your life where you have not surrendered yourself totally to the Lord? And more examples could be given. But the point is that I'm trying to make is as we are constantly being under attack by our spiritual enemies, the devil and his demons and the, the sinful world around us and the remnants of the evil nature that still dwell in us and they, they keep on attacking us. They attack us because we have surrendered to the Lord. And they want us to surrender ourselves to, to the devil and surrender ourselves to sin like they have. Now the Lord Jesus taught us to pray like the psalmist did. He said, pray, deliver us from evil. And the psalmist cried out because he knew of his weakness compared to the strength of his enemies. And he cried out to God because his troubles were far greater than he was. And he could never deliver himself. And worthless is the help of man, as we sang in Psalm 108. And so the psalmist cries out to God And he says, I am yours. 
Save me. And, and we need to do the same when we are faced with these temptations. We need to, to cry out to God and say, Lord, you've, we are yours. We belong to you. You purchased us with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You've signified and sealed this to us in our baptism that we belong to you. Lord, we surrender ourselves totally to you, but help us. Help us to surrender ourselves in every aspect of our life so that we never surrender to the enemy. Now we can be sure, beloved, that the same God of grace who has bought us and who owns us now, he will also save us from our enemies. And in Christ we will be more than conquerors. But how can you be sure that God will answer your prayer to save you also in those hours of temptation when you, your enemies are attacking you? Well, you need to look at your conduct. And that's our third and last point. My conduct, for I have sought your precepts. The word precepts, that's just one of the many words that the psalmist uses for the commandments of God, to God's moral law. And so what basically the psalmist is doing is he's, he's asking God to save him because or for he keeps God's precepts. And that word for or because, that gives the reason why the psalmist says God should answer his prayer. He says, God, save me because I keep your precepts. Save me, God, because I'm living in obedience to your word. Now, if your reformed ears are switched on, there will be alarm bells ringing, as it were, to say, well, that can't be. We don't believe that God answers our prayers and saves us because we keep his commandments. And so, that word for, or because, could easily be misunderstood in our text, as if the, as if the psalmist is saying, Lord, please save me from my enemies because I keep your commandments. And I deserve to be saved. Listen well, beloved. Although the psalmist is holding up his obedience, his righteousness, as a reason for God to hear his prayer, he does not hold up his obedience as a meritorious reason. It is a reason for God to answer his prayer, but it's not a meritorious reason. The psalmist does not ask God to save him as repayment for the good works that he has done in his life. He's not saying, Lord, save me because I'm worthy of being saved. Save me, Lord, because I'm a good person. That certainly is not what the psalmist is saying. He would know, just as we know, that our obedience to God's commandments can never make us worthy of being heard by God or being saved by Him. Never. And there's two reasons for that. First of all, the best of our works are defiled with sin so that we have to say like the prophet Isaiah said in Isaiah 64, 6, he says that all our righteousnesses are filthy rags. 
Our best works are defiled with sin, and, and so they don't merit us anything except further punishment. And the second reason why our obedience can never merit God's answer is because whatever good we do, and we do good works, we can't deny that, we do good works, but we don't do them through our own strength, by our own power, by reason of our fallen nature, we could never do anything good. And so the good things we do, they are actually the works of God in us. Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, he says, <coughs> excuse me, he says, we are his workmanship. We are God's workmanship. We have been created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So the good works that we do in our lifetime have all been prepared by God already in eternity. The fact that we do any good is because God is at work in us, both to will and to work for God's good's pleasure. As Jesus said in John 15, he said, we bear good fruit, but only because we've been grafted into Christ Jesus and because Jesus has come through the Spirit to, to, to live in us. Jesus said in John 15:5, I'm the vine and you are the branches. And whoever abides in me, who's ever connected to me by faith, legally bounded to me, and if I am in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Because apart from me, you can do nothing. And so whatever good we do, whatever good fruits we bear, it's, it's all God's doing, all the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in us. And for those reasons, we could never cry out to God, save me, because I keep your commandments as if, as if our obedience would merit us God's deliverance. And so that's not what the psalmist is saying. But he does hold up his righteousness as a reason for God to answer him. There is that word for, and you can't take that away. He says, save me because I keep your precepts. So why then does he hold up his righteousness? If it's not a meritorious reason for God to answer him, why then does he hold up his righteousness? It's because, beloved, the Lord has graciously promised to hear the prayers of the righteous. Psalm 34, 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And that's not just an Old Testament promise. John says the very same thing in 1 John 3.22. He says, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and we do what pleases him. God hears the prayers of the righteous. He's promised that. The opposite is also true. God has said time and again that he will not hear the prayers of those who refuse to repent of sin and continue to live in it. Psalm 66, verse 18, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Proverbs 15, 29, The Lord is far from the wicked, but he hears the prayer of the righteous. You see, beloved, God promises to hear the prayers of the righteous, those who live in accordance with God's commandments. Psalm 34, 17 again, When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. And so a righteous person then 
he's not worthy of receiving God's aid. His obedience to God's commandments doesn't earn him his salvation, his deliverance. But God has graciously promised to help the righteous. And he promises to save them from their troubles. And so in our text then, the psalmist is holding up his righteousness. Yes, it's God's work in him, totally. But he still holds it up and he says, Lord, save me because I keep your precepts. I'm living in obedience to your commandments. He doesn't hold his righteousness as a meritorious reason. But he holds up his righteousness because God promised to hear the prayers of the righteous. And that's in his mind. Lord, save me. You promised that you would save the righteous. Well, I'm living in accordance with your precepts. So, Father, fulfill your promise. Save me. I don't deserve it. But you're gracious. So save me as you promised. Now, beloved, the Lord has established his covenant with you. He's chosen you. He's adopted you as, your, as his child. He purchased you with the precious blood of a son. And you are his. You belong to him. He owns you. Your life is his. Your body is his. Your time is his. Your energy is his. Your wealth and your possessions are his. And because you are his, you must surrender yourself totally to him. You must live for him. And if necessary, you must be ready to die for him. And if there is any part in your life, beloved, that you have not surrendered completely to the Lord, and if there is anyone who is harboring any sin in his life that he continues to do and delight in, and he continues to commit that sin, then you must repent and surrender yourself totally to the Lord Jesus Christ who bought you. And the more you do so, the more you will be attacked by your three mortal enemies. But you must never, never surrender yourself to them or their temptations. Instead, you must cry out to the Lord to deliver you from the attacks of your enemies. And if you are indeed living in righteousness before God, the Lord will hear your prayer. He will deliver you out of all your troubles, not because you're worthy, but because he graciously promised for Christ's sake. Amen.